0: To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Uh, the book of Ephesians and this passage and how it directs us to see the growth of our inner man. And Lord, as we look today, uh, look tonight and talk about sanctification of, uh, of our mind and, and of, of the inner man and of our hearts, we pray, Father, that your word would do the work that your word does, that it would uh, uncover, that it would restore, that it would put right, um, that it would change us. Uh, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been working through uh, how justification and sanctification actually uh, make a difference um, in our life and and what it is that the story of what God has done, how that uh, affects us. We have talked about the way um, that the deep deep connection across time and space in the covenants that God has made uh, continues to have a direct effect upon us, um, even though it's A long ways away, a long time ago, that those things still affect who we are. We've looked at the way that uh, the different things that chained us to sin and death in our old identity have each been uh, taken away. That they've been that we have been separated from all the different things uh, that chained us to sin and death, so that we could live in a a free life before the Lord, uh, live in wisdom, live well in the world that He made, Um, and. Uh, tonight, what I want to talk about is uh, our the, our inner the inner story that we tell ourselves about our life. Now, um, this is not something that uh, that has always come natural to me. Uh, that's actually really an understatement. I, um, when uh, a few years back, went in to uh, do some counsel work, work with a counselor for a little while. And she said, let's talk about your inner dialogue. And I said, my what? She said, you know, your inner dialogue, the words you say to yourself inside your head. And I was like, I don't think I'd do that. And she said, well, everyone does that. And I thought, huh, do I do that? Oh, there it is. <laughs> it was not something I was even aware of before I sat down with this uh, wonderful older older uh, lady that had been a Christian for many, many years and had so much wisdom and so much help to share. And she worked through, she did a lot of counseling with pastors um, and helped them work through all of the things that pastoring a church digs up. Well, um, there's not much of that, though, right? Yeah, no, it's just... Yeah. Right? And so she said, she said we're going to talk through your inner dialogue. And I had not even ever noticed that I had one. So if you're like me, that is a great place to start. Oh, my gosh. There are words that I say to myself in my head, in my heart. Uh, in my, my inner man has a voice that speaks. And that, that's what we're going to look at here is what Paul calls it is your inner man. And he talks about the sanctification of your inner man Um, in the here in this passage and in a couple of other passages and um, once and but but once I recognized it was there it was really difficult to figure out what to do with it Um, what is it that you do with the fact that you talk to yourself all the time and you're not crazy I mean assuming you're not crazy you talk to yourself all the time we are designed to have an inner man and an outer man, um, and that that depth and that complexity of our person is because we're made in the image of uh, an incomprehensibly deep God. Right? I, I remember when I was getting ready to get married, um, the, the gentleman, my, who was my uncle, who was a pastor, who was, doing our, who, was, who was doing our counseling saying, look, you have to understand, you're marrying a woman made in, in, the, made in the image of an incomprehensible God. You are not going to understand a lot about her, right? And it, it's, there's a depth to the person, uh, that whatever person you're talking to, um, and then there's a depth to you that God wants to uh, restore to its intended uh, end, to its intended use, including all the way into our inner man. So even the things that we keep back that we think nobody else knows about, God knows about. And we're going to see that he loves us anyway, even though he knows what our inner man is like, and he loves us so much that he works to restore even our inner man. Now, one of the things, though, that's been most helpful for me is as I've studied storytelling, and as I've studied story building and character building and character arc building, um, is, uh, comes from a book called Creating Character Arcs by the author K.M. Wyland, And she uh, explains that... Um, that every character, uh, that that a good character arc, how it works is a character has a controlling lie, a controlling lie that they're telling themselves, and a good plot puts pressure on that lie until they're forced to admit the lie and accept the truth, and that's what people find to be a very satisfying character arc, right? Um, that that uh, that we the that the lie that the person is telling themselves at the beginning of the story is keeping them from living well in the world. It's keeping them from being able to be the person that they obviously could be. And then, that lie is revealed, and is revealed to them. And then, if, they, if it's a comedy, if it's a happy ending, if it's a positive character arc, they stop telling themselves the lie, they start telling themselves the truth, and they're able to live in the, in the way that they couldn't before. If it's a tragedy, they double down on the lie... And, the, and everything falls apart, and you get Hamlet, and everyone is dead at the end, right? So, <laughs> Hamlet, probably the greatest work in English literature, is a tragedy, and so the English are naturally tragic people. <laughs> now, um, I want I, to I, I put some, some flesh on this, uh, a particular kind of flesh. Perhaps you have heard the story of the young prince, who knew he was going to be a mighty king? He was a young Simba. Kids who've seen *Lion King*, I know all the adults have. It's one of the greatest movies ever made, and so you've all seen it, right? *The Lion King* is a is a great is a great movie. And here, I, but I want to talk to you about the controlling lie of Simba, because the movie starts out with you know, it's. Swahili, I don't speak Swahili, but uh, you, you've got a new prince, and the king and the queen are very proud of their, their firstborn son. He's the new prince. He's going to be the king of Pride Rock uh, at some point in the future. And, uh, but when we, when we do finally meet him, he's kind of an, an arrogant little punk. Right? He, the first, he, he, he says, oh, it's time to get up, it's time to get up, let's go, let's go. I'm going to go see this world. And the first song that he sings is, I'm going to be a mighty king. right? Kids, you guys know this, right? I'm going to be a mighty king like no king was before. Okay, really? Your dad's James Earl Jones. <laughs> he, he's, he's literally Darth Vader. You're really not going to be greater than your dad. But, but, he, he, but that's the lie that he's telling himself, that I'm going to be a great king because I know how to tell people what to do. I'm going to tell people what to do. I'm going I to uh, rule this place and tell people what to do. And they're going to do what I want them to do. And it's going to make me a great and mighty king. Now, now, it immediately gets him into trouble. Because he goes to the elephant graveyard that he's not supposed to go to. Right, kids? And when your dad says, don't go to the place that the sun doesn't touch. That shadowy place over there. Right? You should listen to him, right? Because there's probably hyenas waiting to ambush you and eat you. And he shows up at the elephant graveyard, he's chased around by the, by the hyenas, and he tries to roar and scare them away. And it turns out he's not a great and mighty king. He's got just a little squeak of a roar. Thankfully, his dad shows up in time to scare away the hyenas. But that's when we discover that Uncle Scar is telling himself the exact same controlling lie. The ex- he's telling himself the exact same thing. Now, his song, when it comes on, is in a minor key, and he's got little marching Nazi hyenas with no eyeballs, and so we know he's the bad guy, right? <laughs> Simbo, well, he was the good guy because it was colorful and it was cute, and he wanted to be a mighty king. And, and, uh, uh, but Scar says the exact same thing. I'm going to be a mighty king... And I'm going to be able to tell people what to do, and it's going to be amazing. And both of them are saying that power is for me. Power is for me. Now, the difference between Simba and Scar at this point is that the author likes one and hates the other. (laughs) He loves Simba enough to confront the controlling lie. To confront, to hurt him enough to get the controlling lie out into the open where he can deal with it, he's pushed. Uh, he, he, his dad dies in a stampede. If I'm spoiling it for anybody, I'm so sorry. But it's been 35 years. I don't feel bad. The right? he's chased. He's chased. He's chased first by the water buffalo. And everybody's got a water buffalo. Yours is, but yours is fast. Mine is slow. But, but. We, he's chased by the water buffalo, so it's obviously your water buffalo, until he, uh, and, and his dad is killed in the process. His dad secretly is murdered by Scar. We don't know that yet, or they don't, nobody knows that yet. But he's told that he, has the, he is the reason that his dad is dead, and that he needs to run. He needs to run away, because there's no way to deal with that shame ever. And so he runs away, and the hyenas chase him, They chase him into the thorns and the thistles. They chase him out into the wilderness. They chase him until he dies. The end. (laughs) The buzzards show up to eat his dead carcass. We've got a dead baby lion on our hands. Lion-ing? What's a baby lion called? Cub. Cub. We've got a dead cub. Thankfully, it's only a metaphorical death. But he had to go through... The curse of the thorns and thistles, the curse of the desert, the curse of the wilderness, uh, and and into death, because he is finally going to have to die to himself. At that point, Timon and Pumbaa show up, right? Timon and Pumbaa are some of the these the great characters of literature, right? They show up um, and save him at the last minute, uh, except for what they offer to him is the option to accept his lie and just live without power, right? Because Hakuna Matata offers the exact same thing as the Nazi hyenas and I'm going to be a mighty king, right? The ability to just live for yourself completely, right? So again, he's confronted with the lie. This time he thinks the problem was I wanted too much power, if I just have power over myself, then I can use that power for myself, and I will find fulfillment. The same lie over again. He gets the, the wrong end of the stick, thinking he can get rid of the lie. That, young men, like I mentioned before, is when someone curvy comes in and messes with his mind. <laughs> because uh, his best friend from when he was growing up, to whom he is betrothed, so don't worry, it's legal... Uh, she shows up, and they, and he and she, she's just trying to eat the pig. She's a lion. That's what they do. That's obvious. Like bacon, hooray! And so chases the chases the pig, and he and he jumps in the way of and they wrestle a little bit, and Nala pins him, pins you again and again. And he says, Nala, and he says, Simba, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be dead. And it's true. He's supposed to be dead. He's been given the opportunities to die to himself, and he hasn't taken any of them so far. But now there's a Nala there. Gentlemen, you'll meet your Nala someday. She messes with your head, makes you want to go off and conquer the world. He starts saying, like, there's gotta be a dragon around here somewhere. <laughs> slay something. Right? You sort of just wrestling at random with other men, and, <laughs> and she's thinking, what's wrong with him? And ladies, you're doing that to him, right? Uh, But and she says you've got to come back. Pride Rock is under a curse. It's under a covenantal curse. Because of Scar's sin. That's not exactly how she puts it. But the place is burned down. It's it hasn't rained since Scar's sin. It, uh, the, the food is gone. They're out across the desert just to find a little bit more food. They're going to have to go into exile any day now. It's under the curse. Uh, uh, the, the pride rock is under a curse. Because of the sin of the, the coercive co-opting ruler. And he says, well, I can't come back. I'm not that lion anymore. And this is the first time he begins to deal with the reality of the situation. The lie that he's told himself is so obviously not true. He's actually in exile. And he's continuing to try and tell himself the lie like he's a king here. But he's not. He's off in exile. And so he has to remember who he is. Thankfully, there's a magic monkey. Like there are- <laughs> Always is, in the best stories, a magic monkey shows up in order to give him the wisdom that he needs to remind him of who he is, of who his father is, of what his father taught him about real true leadership and real true power and the ability to give himself for others the way his father gave himself for him. And he's reminded of all that and he rushes back to Pride Rock and he has to... Deal with the usurping king and the lie, the, the original lie teller, one last time and throw him off. Uh, but, and, and in the process, the whole place burns down because he, as a king, has gone through the death and resurrection of his own inner man. The rest of the land can now go through the, the death and resurrection that it needs to go through to get out from underneath the curse, which ends, of course, with a marriage and Nala being pregnant and the, and the bird being freed from the cage because you know, the, that's what happens when the true king returns. The innocent are freed. The, uh, the life is restored. Things begin to grow again. And, and things are put back the way they ought to be. Right? Now that is a great story. Right? You add to that the good music and, and all of a sudden you've got a masterpiece on your hands. You've got a great story, but it's a story about a king whose the, the, the lie that he's telling himself almost destroys the entire world because he is at, because everything under his authority suffers under his lie. But when he, he turns around and he begins telling the truth and living according to the truth, the things that were suffering from his lie suddenly are blessed by him telling the truth. So that is a character arc where the story that's being told puts pressure on the, the, the controlling lie of the main character in order to free him from it. And here in, in uh, Ephesians 3, you see Paul talking about this, the, the way our own inner man is restored to the truth by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So he starts off by saying, let me tell you about why it is that I bow uh, to God joyfully, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, the reason that we have fathers is because the, the one who created us is a father. And he loves being a father. And so he made a world where fathers uh, exist because it's, it's something that he loves. So every, the whole family in heaven and on earth is named after the father. You sometimes hear, this is an aside, it's just for free, but you sometimes hear liberal theologians say, well, we started calling God father, and um, Freud is famous for this. He, I wouldn't call him a theologian. He's more of a pervert. <laughs> But this is a different thing altogether. Uh, The reason that we call God the Father is because we look at our Father and we think, I need more. He doesn't provide everything I need. Maybe there's some great Father in the sky. And so we have metaphorically fathered God, turned him into a Father because we needed a Father. But Paul says it the exact opposite way around. God created fathers because he was a Father. And so fathers are named after him. He's not named after our Father. But he says that uh, for this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That he would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man right our inner life our inner man is something that god is concerned about and he's concerned about how it can become stronger right how it can how how it can be uh, better able to uh, resist temptation how our inner man can become better uh, more as he says in first peter more uh, more incorruptible right he says the inner man is actually precious in the sight of god in first peter 3 Right, that our heart is something that God is concerned about. He's not just concerned about our outer actions. He's actually concerned about the desires of our heart. That our heart's desires are rightly ordered. That we love the right things. That we love them in the right ways. And the heart, scripturally speaking, involves our whole thought process. Right, our, the metaphor that we use uh, is head and heart. And head is where the reason happens. And heart is where the emotions happen. Um, And the the metaphor that they used in Bible times and and in Greece and Rome is the heart is where the reason happens, and the kidneys is where the emotions happen, right? We've got sort of like, you know, that gut feeling Um, in our kidneys. That's our emotion, where the seat of our emotions, and then our heart is the seat of our reason. And so when he starts talking about wanting, uh, wanting our heart to be strengthened, he's talking about the, the the way that our that we reason, our inner dialogue, the story we tell ourselves, the way that we make sense of the world, the, the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. It's an important and it's an important thing, and God wants it to be stronger. The inner man, we're told, is being renewed day by day by the Spirit. So that our thoughts are turned further away from falsehoods and lies and turned more and more towards the truth. So as, as it says in Ephesians as he goes on, right, he says uh, that, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you will be rooted and grounded in love. What does our inner man strengthened look like? Well, our thoughts are turned more and more to Christ. That, our, that The way we think is more and more a place where Christ dwells. And we become more and more rooted and grounded in love. Now, um, he says that's the, the inner life looking at Christ. But he's, then he goes on to say, and this is the other way that we are strengthened in our inner life. We understand how Jesus looks at us. And that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he says, I want your hearts to become a place where Christ dwells more. That you think more on Christ and what he's done. That you th- and that you think more and more about how am I going to love my neighbor? How am I, I going to love the Lord? How, how am I going to put together a plan to love these people around me that aren't always the easiest to love. I mean, maybe maybe you're not like me, but I don't always sit around thinking like love plans. I'm going to put together love plans. How am I going to love people when, when they show up? How am I going to love the people that I work with? How am I going to love my family? How am I going to love my neighbors and my neighborhood? How am I going to, right? But he says, first, he wants us to look at Christ more and think more about how we're going to love people. And then he says, and you will be strengthened in your inner man when you're able to comprehend the width and the length and the depth and the height of God's love. That you will know how unknowable Christ's love is for you. That it surpasses your ability to know. That's how much God loves you. It surpasses your ability to even know and understand that much love. The height, the width, the depth, the length of it is beyond what you can comprehend. You'll sometimes hear people say, I don't understand the Trinity, so I don't think I can believe in that God. But the reality is, if you could understand God, it's because he came out of your head. But the Trinity is not the only incomprehensible thing about God. God's love for you is incomprehensible because of its height and its depth and its width and its length. It surpasses knowledge. And he wants you to experience and know that love in your inner man. Be filled with all the fullness of God. So when we look at God and when we look at our lives and we look at how things are going, if we see something other than the great love of God as the overarching story and explanation for how things are, then we are starting to tell a different story about our lives than the one God is telling with our lives. And so what God does is he sends us situations that sometimes, right in the moment, we think, okay, I don't, under, I don't see how this is loving, Lord. I don't see how this is loving right in the moment. But he says, I want you to comprehend by faith that God loves you, even in that. So that in your inner man, you can stop and say, okay, Lord, I, this is what I know. What I know is, this is happening right now because you love us. I don't yet see or understand how that works. Now, if you're like me, what often happens is something happens is you say, Why Lord, why do you hate me so much? Why am I why do I have to be the clown at your rodeo? I don't understand what it is that you're doing this to me for, right? And and God gently corrects us. Right? And an important part about storytelling um, an important thing that authors do when they're dealing with the controlling lie of a character is what's called recapitulation. They put somebody into the same story, into the same situation, multiple times in a row so that they can react to them differently. Um, the, one of the things that I, that uh, happens to m- my wife and I when we had very small kids and we were about as poor as you can be, um, we had I had a a uh, white hatchback Toyota that had no starter in it, so it was just wired across the starter cavity, um, and you parked it on a hill, and you just popped the clutch every morning to take it to work. Um, and, you know, we couldn't afford a, couldn't afford a starter, and so, so I would just park on the hill in the back of the parking lot at work, and, and that's how poor we were. We, that, the, and um, I was uh, working at a, gasket factory I was working the night shift at a gasket factory keeping the world from leaking one chunk at a time right and we're making hundreds of thousands of gaskets every night and we had a little station and uh, um, we, we had put together some dollars and some coins and I'd gone down to Walmart to buy a CD player so I could get audiobooks on CD from the library to make my night shift go a little bit faster and uh, it was $13.97, because it was Walmart. And, uh, and so I get there, and I open up my new CD player, and I plug it in, I turn it on, and it doesn't work. I'm like, oh. So I have to just listen to the radio of the guy next door who loved 80s hair metal. Not the worst thing in the world, but at <laughs> 2 in the morning, you maybe don't want to hear you know, uh, uh, one more rap song. Um, Rat, R-A-T-T is the 80s hair metal. Well, so I put my put my broken stereo into the box and I put it in the back seat of this car and I drive home and I park at 3 in the morning and I go inside to, to go to bed, come back out the next morning to go to work. and I'm going to leave a little bit early so I could return the broken stereo to Walmart and somebody in the middle of the night had taken the neighbor's for sale sign, wrenched it, out of the ground and threw it through the window of my car in order to steal the broken stereo. <laughs> I didn't stop and say, okay, Lord, I know you love me, so whatever this is for. Right? I went in and I used all the four-letter words I knew, which weren't that many because I was only in my 20s. I've learned a lot more since then. But I used them all. I stomped around the house. I threw a fit, and my wife was like, it's just a radio. I'm like, it's the principle of the thing. It's the principle of the thing. right? It threw a tantrum. Drove to work with the broken window of the car. And then came home and, and, and asked my wife to forgive me for the tantrum I had thrown. That was, I, I did not respond to that well. Please forgive me. Ask the Lord to forgive me. He said, I forgive you because Jesus died on the cross for me. And, uh, and then went back to work. Now, we were so poor that at the end of every month, we would be gathering up the chains so I could get enough gas to make it to work. And uh, I was uh, heading off to work one night, and I, I knew I was really low on gas, and so I made it to work. But then on the way home, ran out of gas, three in the morning, it's starting to snow, and I'm getting off at Sprague Avenue in Spokane, and I'm pushing my little car down the street to try and get to the gas station. A cop pulls over, jumps out, and he's helping me push the car, and all I'm thinking is, please don't see that the car is not registered, (laughs) (laughs) because we couldn't afford the tabs, right? And so we make it into the Shell station, and uh, and I'm gathering up as much change as I can, 86 cents, and the find in the car and take it in, and I come back out, and the cop's standing there, and he's like, I don't want to kick you when you're down, but you know your car's not registered. I was like, yes, I know, but we can't afford it. Obviously, I can't afford a gas officer. It's the end of the month, and he was, he, he was very gracious, and he was like, okay, no, I get it, I get it, and so I put my 86 cents in, go home. Well, the next day, I have to go to work again, right? <laughs> Drive to, and so, but I'm almost out of gas, right? And so I have to take my wife's car. So, take my wife's car because we're almost out of gas. Um, and I come home, and the car is gone. Somebody stole the whole car. Not just the radio, they didn't just break it, they stole the whole car. So, we go inside. And this is what recapitulation looks like. I remember the embarrassment of the fit I threw last time. And so I go and I say, let me tell you a funny story. The car is gone. We've been robbed. Now, we got robbed about once a year, the first 10 years of our marriage. So the robbing wasn't, but this was the biggest thing they'd ever stolen. So we call the police. The police officer comes over and Telling her about what's going on and she takes the statement and she heads out to her car to leave. And then she comes walking back up and she says, guess what? We found your car. They made it six blocks and ran out of gas. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So it turned out to be actually a really funny story. (laughs) But God gave us those two stories in a row so that he could show that he is actually working on Our inner man. He's actually growing and changing our inner man. And you wouldn't know it if you don't get the second recapitulation of the same thing over again. He wants, uh, uh, God is on our side. The great love of God, the, the, the love that is incomprehensibly great, that is towards you, is the frame of everything about your life. And that is what's supposed to define our inner man. He says that's what strengthens our inner man. It gives it power and might. God is on our side. And then, this is the next verse in Ephesians. And he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, please provide this, please provide that. And he is thinking in 4D, 5D chess, right, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think with the great love that he has towards us. And it says, with the power that works in us. Now remember what he's talking about here is bringing our inner man in, in line with his love. Right? He's teaching us how to, to speak inside our, inside our head, to speak to ourselves with the truth of his love, of his care for us, and his power to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That same power is the power that's transforming us within. So when, uh, when my wife and I were down in Santa Cruz with our kids, and God gave us the opportunity to be a part of a, a, a church plant and a school that was starting, and if you've ever been a part of a new institution, you know you never have the things that you need. Well, um, my wife and I had, we had spent a lot of years poor, right, with, that we were, we wanted to go into the mission field early on, so we were practicing being poor, also I'm really bad with money, and so I don't know how to, so I couldn't, can't even tell the difference, um, right, and, and when we first were married, we, uh, I, I got a job um, teaching, uh, teaching special ed in the alternative high school in Aberdeen, Washington, right, so the highest, uh, the, the highest um, drug use rate per capita of any city west of the Mississippi. If you guys didn't know that, Aberdeen, Washington. I was teaching special ed in the alternative high school in the mornings, and then I was teaching, I was, I, I was tutoring in the alternative to the alternative high school, which really meant I was the bodyguard. Um, and... But, and I, and I made $1,750, $1,750, see, I'm really bad with money, a month, and our bills were $1,900 a month, but we were newlyweds, and so we were in love, and so everything was great. Right? Like, yeah, the math doesn't add up, but she's so pretty. She lives with me. Everything will be fine, except for about two days before the end of every month, we ran out of money and food. Right? <laughs> and so we would, I would come home and Aaron and say, we're out of money and there's no food in the house. I'd say, all right, well, let's pray for food. Father in heaven, can, we, can somebody please invite us to dinner? <laughs> and Lord, if they could send us home with leftovers for lunch tomorrow, that'd be great. And people would call. Hey. And we would eat food that we could never afford, crab and shrimp and um, French cheese. That's when, I just, that's when I first learned about brie. So we ran out of money, and the neighbor invited us over and said, it's, let me show you a tour of France cheese. France cheese factories or whatever, wherever you make cheese. You've got to taste all the best cheeses of France. And we literally had no money. <laughs> we had months where somebody would just drop $100 through the window of our car, when we were at a grocery store, right? God just took care of us. Um, And when we were starting the school, we remembered those stories because it felt so similar. We don't have enough money. And so we had a, a new headmaster, and we'd just finished spending our budget, and he came in and he said, Hey, we never bought me a printer. I said, Okay, well, what printer? I know this story. I've been in this story before, what kind of printer do you want? And he said, well, it'd be a wireless printer, color would be great, and um, if we could get some extra cartridges, that'd be great. And he's thinking, like, maybe the church is going to go buy it. I like, okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we need a wireless printer. And color would be great. And Father, if there's some extra cartridges you can throw in, it'd be such a blessing. Um, Because we're out of money. Uh, amen. <laughs> I open my eyes and the headmaster says, you know that's not the way it works, right? <laughs> and that was like, we'll find out. Right? <laughs> At the end of that day, a guy comes walking into the office with a box and he says, hey, does anybody need a color printer? Uh, it's wireless and there's some extra cartridges in here. I just this morning realized it was in my <laughs> garage and I had no use for it. And maybe you guys need it. And the headmaster's head goes <laughs> uh, out the door. Right? (laughs) Recapitulation. God puts us through the same stories to teach us, not just to teach us lessons, but to teach us that he has taught us lessons. Right? God, God's love is the kind of love that doesn't just want to provide for us. Right? It wants to provide for us in such a way that we look around and we can tell other people, God will provide. God will provide. The same way we talked about how he comforts us so we can comfort others. God changes the way that we talk to ourselves so we can learn how to tell people about God's love for them. One of the great things about being a pastor was the number of times people would come into my office and say, I'm out of money. And say, thankfully we didn't have deacons, so we, didn't have, we don't have money to help you with. But we can pray about it. I was once sitting with somebody and... Uh, a, a very large gentleman from the church comes running up to the window of my office and puts a check up there. It's for $191.20. And yesterday we had prayed for $191.10. God gave him an extra dime because he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Right? God is strengthening our inner man That's what your life story is. is him putting pressure on the lies we tell ourselves about how God doesn't love us. The lies that we tell ourselves about how God isn't going to take care of us. About how God isn't going to provide for us. He loves you beyond what you can ask or imagine. And that is the story that your inner man, that God is teaching your inner man to tell. Now... I'm sure you're immediately thinking of Hebrews 13, right? Hebrews 13, where it says, yes, but the discipline of the Lord never feels good at the time. Well, of course not. It wouldn't be discipline. But he's, you are his child. And pressure feels like pressure. But he's putting pressure on the lies that you're telling yourself that are keeping you from wisdom. Keeping you from joy. Keeping you from being able to live the life God created you to live. And His promise is that all of the tears that you cry now in the midst of this uh, preface to eternal life, that He is storing up in jars. He's storing up in jars that He will plant. Right? He will wipe away every tear in the resurrection, put everything right the way that it's intended to be. And at the end of all things, we'll look around and say, this is above and beyond and greater than what I thought it would be. And every tear that you cried in the process of him strengthening your inner man and bringing you to the truth and shaping you into the person that he intends you to be, every tear, he will have in his jar and say, this all had a purpose. Because he knows that it's painful. He knows that it's hard. He knows that it's difficult to transform you. But he loves you. And he loves you enough to put you through the pain, to get you beyond the lies, to the truth that sets us free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful. Lord, there's so many times that we can't even see or understand what's going on. But Lord, we know we tell ourselves lies. We know we get caught in the grip of lies. We know we get a a short tape of lies that gets on repeat in our head. And we thank you that you insist on getting us out of it. Lord, we pray that as you sanctify us, as you transform us, that the, the strength of our inner man becomes a blessing to others around us. Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for the sanctification that frees us from the shackles that keep us bound to death and to sin. And we pray for the sanctification that helps us to know and understand how unsearchably great your love is for us. Lord, help us to become loving people because we understand your love for us. We thank you and we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. no i won't I won't let him whisper the name to me
1: yeah you would just call ty and christina and <laughs> 425-890-0674 if you want to shoot a question to me um, Wow thank you um, <laughs> You see Nathan's T-shirt? It's, it's, it's faded. Hakuna. Okay. Matata. That's, such Hakuna. A, that's such a great <laughs> song.
0: And once you put it into the right place in the story, right, when they get to the end, then it's fine.
1: Is that right, Nate? Yeah. Hakuna right. Matata. Such a wonderful <laughs> phrase.
0: There ain't no passing craze. That's what's
1: great about it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, someone asked me, in, in light of this, uh, in this t- this topic, hasn't hasn't been here, but it's uh, it, it fits. In the process of sanctification, one of the things you didn't talk about is um, we have many temptations, and then and there, yeah. are, for 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 an individual, one individual is is tempted in one particular way, and another person in another different kind of way. But one of the things that people struggle with is, is like, my temptations, are they gonna, is that ever gonna end? Right, right. Is that, is that gonna stop? Yeah, I, I think one of the things, um, one of the
0: things that happens, and this is, this, is, this goes right along with the way we uh, talk to ourselves and tell our own story, is that when we fall into a sin, and then um, ask God to forgive us, and then we fall into the sin again, we think, <laughs> There we go. I did it again. Mm-hmm. I'm back in the same hole, fell into the same pit over and over and over again. Um, and uh, we end up uh, in a self-destructive inner inner dialogue, um, inner monologue usually, uh, about temptation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is, when you commit a sin and you go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, that pit is filled in and it's done and God when he forgives us, part of that is he promises not to treat us according to that sin anymore. Mm-hmm. And so if we fall into that sin again, we're not falling into the same pit again. That other pit is already gone. It's done away with. God's forgotten it. Right? You fell into a brand new one. <laughs> it's a brand That's um, and the reason that's good news yeah. is because um you, we're told that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, then He will lift us up. Um, if the, but so often our inner dialogue is, why is my sin so much stronger than God's grace? Why you know um, rather than oh I fell into this to to this sin again, I fell to this temptation again. God's already forgiven it before; He'll forgive it again, um, and it reorients the temptation into another moment of God's grace. And as we humble ourselves before the Lord, we can trust that he's going to lift us out of that perpetual temptation. I mean, the uh, uh, perpetual falling to the temptation. There are some temptations that we live with our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have uh, I had uh, one good friend who um, his, he, his parents were drug addicts. He started smoking pot when he was nine years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, came to the Lord in his early 20s, uh, and I knew him in his early 40s, and he said a, a day doesn't go by that I wonder if pot wouldn't help. <laughs> he's, like, yeah. he's like, I haven't smoked pot since I was in my early 20s. But a day doesn't go by. He's like, because it was before his f- full brain had finished forming everything, right? His, his brain chemistry was, uh, was literally altered by marijuana, um, and, and, which is a concern I have about, you know, the future of Washington State. Because right? the, um, the <laughs> there's so much... I mean, it's amazing how much marijuana there is. It has long-term effects. But he was now at a point where he was con- it, he was now conquering that temptation daily. So it wasn't that the temptation had gone away, but he conquered it daily. Um, and he had fallen to it regularly as a young Christian. And now he was conquering it daily. And he probably will have that temptation the rest of his life. Um, but the, his relationship to it had changed where it had become a story of conquering the temptation daily instead of a story of... Because we, we just think, I just want it to go away. Right? Um, uh, we all want to have fought a dragon. Yeah. We never want to fight a dragon. Sure. Um, but uh, the, every time that temptation, because, and so we end up thinking that the temptation is the sin. And so as soon as we feel tempted, we think, it's back again. Yep. But really, that's the beginning of the fight. Right? The temptation shows up. You didn't fail. Right? That's when you p- take up the sword. That's the beginning of the fight. You think, oh, I'm in the ring. Oh. I've lost again. <laughs> no, no. This is when
1: you, know, you take on
0: Apollo Creed. Yeah. <laughs> again.
1: <laughs> yeah, good. Um, how, would you discover, how would you discover the inner lies controlling your life? Uh, and a second question. If you see someone else is controlled by lies that they don't see, how would you help them? How do I find the, my own lies? How do yeah. I identify the, my own lies? And if I see someone else in their lies, how would I help them?
0: Um, I'm actually going to look up. There's a really helpful section in the, that K.M. Weiland book, and I have it on my Kindle here. Um, so <laughs> she talks about how do you spot the controlling uh, the controlling lies, and and um, she says it's the root of fear, of extreme emotions like when the emotions are not or inappropriate for the situation, um, the inability to forgive. Guilt, the keeping of horrible secrets. I like the way she puts that. As, a, um, it, as an author, you think, "Ooh, I can give my characters horrible secrets." <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and then shame you can't get over. All right? So it says at the root of all of those things, you find controlling lies. Um, so, so if if there are situations where you know, your your emotional response to a situation just isn't the right emotional response. And you see that, but you don't understand why. Um, I, that's a good place to start you know, to, to start digging or start getting out the, the metal detector and seeing if it beeps. Is there a controlling lie here? Um, my emotions aren't proper. Or I keep, I'm afraid. Um, fear is gripping me. Um, guilt, shame uh, is gripping me. So those are some of the ways. Uh, in terms of helping other people, I mean, the first thing to do is start praying for them. Right? Remember we talked about that covenantal connectedness um, across space and time. Uh, John Calvin says, uh, we don't know the future, but we can get a glimpse of it by looking at the things we've prayed for. Because <laughs> right? our prayers are one of the ways that God brings the future into existence. Mm. It's, it's one of the powers by which God creates the future, is our prayers. Um, and uh, uh, so definitely, if somebody you know is really gripped by a controlling lie, prayer for them really works. God is listening, and the, the power that undoes the controlling lie is the spirit that works in us, Ephesians says. Right, and so what that person needs is the Holy Spirit's work. Um, moms are particularly tempted to think Think that they can be that Holy Spirit, especially in their kids' lives. Um, that's a, a, a temptation. So instead of praying for our kids, uh, we immediately dig in and say, "Oh, I know what the Spirit should do. Let me do it." Um, uh, but the uh, uh, it's more it's generally more helpful to ask people questions to dig out the lies, so that they can find it themselves. Um, because uh, it, it's like you know when when uh, I remember rollerblading in the early 90s. I don't have an excuse. It was the early 90s. We rollerbladed. Um, and it, it, the snow finally melted, and I was really excited, and I was out on the main drag. But I try, went off onto a, a side street, and the, the street cleaner hadn't gotten to the side streets yet, so there was still all of the gravel that they put, they'd put down for the snow. And I came around the corner and went down this hill straight into the gravel and just ate it, and had, uh, to, took all the skin from j- just above my knee down to where my roller blade started, just took all the skin off and replaced it with gravel. Um, this has been, you know, zombie obsessed ever since, because I was like, zombie leg. <laughs> and uh, the and I went home, and, and my mom was like, let me help. And I was like, nope, that's going to hurt. Like, She's like, no, let me help. And I'm like, no, that's gonna hurt. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. And um, and so she came over and she with the uh, alcohol and went and just dumped it. And I was like, oh, that hurts. Well, most of the time, if you go after somebody's controlling lie, that's what they're going to respond as. Oh, that's gonna hurt. That's an open wound right there, um, because many of the controlling lies come out of the, the wounds that we receive by living in a fallen world. Um, and so, but, but if somebody discovers it themselves, right, because at that point my mom gave me the tweezers and I spent the day picking gravel out myself. Um, and you don't flinch. When somebody else is coming for it, you flinch. Um, now, kids, my mom did the right thing. Somebody had to put the alcohol on there or I was going to get infection. But um, when you're flinching, it's harder to get at it. So, if they're discovering it themselves through you asking them questions, and then um, they'll be more likely to go after the tweezers and the gravel.
1: Uh, somewhat of a change. Uh, if good character story arcs are so well-known, why are so many Hollywood movies so bad?
0: <laughs> the executive producer. <laughs> um <laughs> He's the one that controls the purse strings. He's getting, he has an agenda, and he wants to make sure it's in there. Uh, no, <laughs> that, is, that is true sometimes. Um, ESG scores is the other reason. But the, you have... Uh, a, a big part of it, though, is because um, uh, most people that are trained to tell those stories don't spend their lives really digging in to discovering the wisdom of the way the world works, whereas... Um, you know, if you look at a lot of Golden Age Disney, um, The Lion King, Mulan, you um, you meet the writer of those movies, and they're Christians. They and so they're purposefully writing, um, understanding their understanding of the way God made the world into their movies. Um, oh, and the the ones that aren't Christians have spent their lives studying great stories and are influenced um, by it. But the More and more, um, I mean, I I recently had somebody I was talking to, and they were like, oh, you know, oh, do you like Game of Thrones? And I was like, no, I don't really. I just find it really unbelievable. And they said, well, you know, other stories you like have dragons in them. It's like, oh, no, I believe in dragons. That's not the unbelievable part. I don't believe in a world where everyone um, is only out for themselves. You wouldn't have any of those kingdoms ever built if everyone was only out for themselves. That's an unbelievable story. That story is just not real, because a story where everyone's out for themselves um, is, the, is uh, William Goldman's uh, uh, Lord of the Flies. Right? Gotham. <laughs> Gotham, yeah, that, those are sto- that's what happens when everybody's out for themselves, is Lord of the Flies. You don't get the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah. Um, it's so, like, I can't believe in that. I mean, the dragons, if you just spend enough time wandering the jungles of Africa, you can find yourself a dragon. Everybody believes in dragons. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> the Congo, that's where you find them. That's where you, you kids, find them, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the unicorns moved all to Russia, so. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, your previous talk. Um, how do you explain covenant... How do you explain covenant unity, and also headship, to someone who lives and breathes in a materialist, materialist culture?
0: Yes, this this is, and this is going to be harder and harder, um, because materialism is, is the reason materialism and egalitarianism end up going together is because they are both um, power based systems, right? Egalitarianism. Um, is a power-based system, um, where whoever is the strongest in any particular moment is the one that gets to lead and be in charge. Um, and there's different kinds of power, but, it's, but whoever is the most powerful wins in egalitarianism. Uh, and materialism is the same sort of way. It's this Machiavellian power-based system. Whereas uh, covenant theology is, uh, is about the distribution uh, of authority um, away from pure, sheer strength. right? It's not a question of who's stronger, um, that you, you distribute authority and then you have to give yourself away into an office in order to, f- to find the intended purpose for life. Um, so... And it's going to get harder and harder as people get further and further away from it, um, especially since now people that are starting to talk about you know, headship and talk about uh, patriarchy and different things like that are actually bringing that strength-based egalitarianism assumption into it. They're saying, well, look, but guys really are just stronger, <laughs> and so they should be in charge. Well, that's not why God, God gave them strength because he was going to put them as the head of their home, and they need that strength to defend, right? So they have to be strong to defend what God has given them um, the authority to protect. Uh, So so how do you talk about it convincingly, I I think is the question? Yeah,
1: or, yeah, yes, in this world.
0: In this world. Uh, How many of you guys love the Second Amendment? Right. The Second Amendment is the right to have a gun. Right. Yeah, it's a good thing, right? It's an it's a important good thing in common law history going all the way back to the 800s. It's, it's really, it's right up there with the right to cross a bridge, right? it's, um It's an important right of an Englishman. Well, uh, many people, when they go to defend the Second, Com- uh, the Second Amendment, they say, try and take them. I'll show you what a gun can do if you try and take my gun, right? That's not very good rhetoric, right? <laughs> you know what is good rhetoric is when um, the, the, that grandma that recently stopped a, a mugging at a, the, the, outside of a 7-Eleven, guy was uh, getting beat up and he was getting mugged, and a, and a little old granny pulled her gun out and said, stop or I'll shoot. And the guy looked at her and he went to kick the guy again and she went, pop. And she stopped the mugging, right? If you want a world where women aren't taken advantage of, give each one of them a gun, right? It's a granny versus two big guys that were mugging somebody at 7-Eleven, and the gun evened the odds, and she was able to stop it, right? So if somebody says, why do you think the Second Amendment should be around? You say, well, I want to be able to protect my neighbor, right? It's, a, it's the neighbor defense, the right to protect your neighbor, right? That's a framing of... The, the power that comes with a gun into its purpose that God gave it. So I think when we start talking about uh, authority and headship um, and covenant understanding of, uh, of the office of head and the office of subject in covenants, um, people are going to flinch away at it at first because their assumptions are Machiavellian. Their assumptions are that this is a power game and that we live in a power game. Um, and what we need to Always talk about is that that strength is a protection game, right? That that covenants are protections um, for the weak. Covenants are uh, intended by God to be a protective setup, where the the um, that the the subject of the covenant. So we don't even like to use that word, um, but that's that's the the I think the right word to use. The subject of the covenant has the right of protection and provision, right? Protection and provision comes with a covenant head. That's what the headship is for. And that's what the strength is for. And so I think we need to reframe um, the way we talk about it into, uh, into discussions of protection, protections of the weak, protection of children, uh, and uh, that, that headship means protection provision
1: why would god give power to a king yeah not for the king
0: right not for the king It's for his subjects right right? what Mm -hmm. um if if the the reason that they put the the best warrior um in line to be king next um, back before succession was simply by birth order um, was because the king's job was to protect the tribe, right? right? Um, and so you wanted a, a great warrior there.
1: Mm-hmm. I think I got home. Oh, this is good. Before we end, can you give us the top 10 movies of all time?
0: Yes, I can. But there's, there's 19 of them. <laughs>
1: There's 19 of the, top, the top 10. 10.
0: No, my, my, my wife will tell you I'm infamous for getting really bad at math when in top 10 lists. Um.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. Top 10 list.
0: Oh, man. Okay, so do you want my favorite or, or the actual, like, best? Because those are not, not necessarily going to line up. It, it didn't say. It didn't say. Okay, well, I'll just tell you, um, my, my favorite movies. Um, and I'll, in no particular order, um, although the number one is Shawshank Redemption for me. the um, Kids, that one, when you grow up a little bit, you can watch that one. It's about prison and what happens when the wrong- wrongfully imprisoned man um, has, has to spend his life in prison. Shawshank Redemption, um, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Iron Giant count as one movie, because they're all written and directed by the same guy. So I'm two in the Brad Bird collection DVD. That's number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Hellboy. You'll just have to watch it and see. It's, it's great. Um, the Princess Bride. Right, really great. Uh, the Lion King. Um, this is where it does, it does start to get difficult. Um, Rocky, the first Rocky, I think is about as close to a perfect movie as has ever been made. Um, it's really a great movie. Um, Jaws. Jaws? <laughs> uh, yeah, Jaws is so, it's such a great movie. It's so perfect. Was, okay. Yeah, it was really, really good. <laughs> Jaws. Um, oh, man. What a, number 10. Malachi, what am I missing? No. What? Oh, something new. <laughs> something new. My, oh, okay. Thor, uh, Ragnarok. I think I would put up there. Um, I, I really liked the new, I haven't had time to watch it multiple times. Oh, okay, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I forgot that one, that's top ten, and, um, I haven't got, the, the newest, um, the, the newest, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I haven't gotten to see him multiple times, so I don't know if I can actually put it there, but I think it was really, really good, um, really, really well made, uh,
1: not a single rom-com.
0: Not a single... No, there are some good rom-coms out okay. there, just not... So. And then... fourth season of Stranger Things. It's the only time Metallica's ever made me cry.
1: Uh, it's really good. Should we close there? Yeah, we should close there.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> now I'm adding
1: TV shows. <laughs> Psych. Psych. (laughs) All right. Uh, We won't give him an applause after he preaches on Sunday, so I'm going to invite you to give thanks again to Jason for coming and speaking to us now. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thank you.